Pocketbook. Noun. One. A woman's handbag. Two. A paperback or other small cheap edition of a book. Hi everyone, welcome back to the pocketbook, the down market version of literature that you never knew you needed, and the place where we read hard things so you don't have to. I mean, not just that our reading sort of subs out your reading, but we read it and then tell you about it, which is even better. Just in case you are starting backwards, if you get to this episode, please go back to episode one. This story happens in order, and I'm going to start referring to things that happened in previous episodes, so it's best to start at episode one, titled In the Beginning. Um, just another quick word, if you want to contact the podcast, you can reach us at thepocketbook at gmail.com and find us at thepocketbook on Instagram as well. So if you have questions, comments, things that I forgot, things that I missed, uh, please let me know. Also a quick word on social media, if you didn't read or didn't hear the disclaimer in episode one, uh, just another quick word about what this podcast is and isn't. This is the down market version of literature. This is not a biblical scholarship podcast. This is not a religious podcast. Um, I'm just talking and telling you stuff so you don't have to read it. If you want more details, there are tons of people who have done their master's and their PhD in this kind of stuff, and you can go and listen to what they have to say and form your own opinions. So please, if you have strong opinions about the Bible and you don't like Bible and humor together, just turn around. Do not pass go. Do not collect your 200 shekels. Please just just leave. This isn't the podcast for you. But as I said previously, if you do enjoy a little bit of Bible and humor and you want to know really what is actually in that book that people have been talking about, then stick around because we are about to get to both the first murder and some naked grandpa time with curses because what's a good story without curses? So if you're following along in your Bible... Remember, we're doing the New Revised Standard Version translation. There are about 30 million translations of the Bible, but that's the one that I like, so it's the one that I'm using. We've made it all the way to Genesis chapter 4. Go us! And now we get to Cain and Abel. So the first thing that happens after Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden, which is what happened last episode... Now we get into them having babies, which, I mean, is the best next thing to do once you get kicked out. I suppose you have to go on and be fruitful and multiply like God told them to do in the first part of this book. So my favorite part is Adam knew Eve and then there was a baby magically. So for anyone who doesn't know, often, (laughs) anyone who doesn't know, the word know, if you have a man knowing a woman or so-and-so knew so-and-so, uh, sexy times happened. That That's what happened. Babies were made in the usual fashion. So that happens a lot in the Bible. People knowing each other. I don't know. It's kind of a handy little, little by thing. So now you're welcome. You will never be able to hear the word no again uh, without having nasty thoughts. So congratulations. There you go. Uh, so once Adam had known Eve and magically there was a baby, I thought it was really wonderful. Eve says, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord, which I mean, only sort of accurate. You've produced a small wrinkly red little gremlin. You haven't really produced a man. It's, it can't even see you. It doesn't have object permanence, but like, cool though. Well done you. So all of a sudden we skip through childhood. Cain and Abel grow up. They have a, Adam and Eve have a second son named Abel. So Cain's the oldest. Abel's the youngest, um, and Cain grows up to be a farmer guy. He is 
a person who tills the soil. And so he grows veggies. Yay. And Abel is a shepherd who grows sheep, I guess. I don't know if you can grow sheep, but you can now. So things come to a head because, I mean, we jump to the murder pretty quickly here. There's no there's no backstory. If you haven't heard about Cain and Abel, uh, spoilers, this is where the murder happens. If you already knew about Cain and Abel, you know, I guess no spoilers. Plus the book's been in existence for thousands of years, so I don't think spoilers are really a thing. Anyway, what happens is Cain and Abel both bring a sacrifice to the Lord. And so Cain brings him some fruit of the ground, which to me, I think fruit of the ground must be things like squash and things like that. Squash and watermelon and pumpkins and that kind of stuff. That would be fruit of the ground in my mind, as opposed to fruit of the tree, which would be things like apples and pears and figs and stuff. Anyway, Abel, being uh, somewhat cooler, I guess, brings all of his firstborn lambs and then sacrifices them. Ugh. By the way, the first murder, first animal cruelty, things just go downhill from here. I mean, if you are not familiar with the New Testament, I uh, sorry, pardon me, the Old Testament, then wow, strap in because if this is if this is too much for you, it just gets worse from here. So, once the sacrifices had been presented, God looked at Abel's sacrifice and was like, "Yeah, love me some year some brand new lambs. That's that's the good stuff." Then he looks at Cain's sacrifice and is like, "Eh, it's all right, I guess." And so Cain is understandably not super happy about this, and the Lord, being the omnipotent being that he is, notices that Cain's not so happy and is like, "Dude, why are you mad? You want my attention? Bring me better fruit next time." Uh, understandably, Cain is not appeased by that in any way, and so he does. The thing that I'm sure murderers have done for centuries says, Hey, hey, Abel, you want to you wanna go out to the field? And Abel, like a doofus, says, Yeah, sure, bro. So they go out there, and then Cain, quote, rises up and slays his brother, end quote. So we don't really know how he killed his brother. I mean, you'll see artistic depictions of him using a rock, using a great big club. I don't know. The, the imaginative mind of Catholic mythology has captured this moment in a variety of ways. But uh, the point is, Abel's dead. And the best part about this story, if there can be a best part of a murder story, is that God says to Cain, hey, where's your brother? And Cain responds with a line that has really become, I would say, ubiquitous in Western written culture. And he says, am I my brother's keeper? Which apparently, now don't take my word for this, I read it somewhere and I don't remember my source, in the original, or a closer translation would have been God saying, hey, where's the sheep keeper? And Cain saying, I don't know, do I look like a brother keeper? Which I think is just the sassiest shit ever. Um, and so then God doesn't even bother to answer that. Uh, he just says, oh my God, oh my me, what did you do? And this incredibly poetic line, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground, which I don't know. If you think of blood as like, you know, a pool of blood is one entity, then I suppose it's just like one long prolonged cry. But I personally picture it as being just little blood droplets going Aah! very quietly so only God can hear them. Anyway, the point is, Abel's dead, God's mad, and he says, that's it, you're cursed. So you spilled your brother's blood on the ground, and that means no more farming for you. The ground will turn against you, 
and you don't get to grow stuff anymore. It's going to be real bad. Also, you could just get to leave and wander around the earth. You can't live here anymore because you're a jerk face and also a murderer. And Kane really, I think, perceptively says, wow, this really sucks. And then he says, so not only do I have no skill with the soil, you took that thing I like away from me. That's kind of yucky. But I mean, I guess I murdered someone, so it's probably okay. And I have to be a fugitive and wander around the earth. And then anyone who meets me could kill me. And God says, good point. Let me add on to that punishment that just gave you. I'm going to put a mark on you so that anyone that comes up on you and says, oh, hey, what's this? there's this random guy. Maybe we should kill him. There'll be a mark on you that says anybody that kills this guy, they get vengeance sevenfold, which isn't avenged. Oh, yeah. Avenged sevenfold is a metal band, isn't it? Anyway, that's a thing. You'll also notice that we're back to sevens again. Seven days for creation. Seven generations of punishment. Sevens, unsurprisingly, kind of an important number, which I suspect is one of the origins for why we have such um, a fixation on lucky numbers like seven and three in, you know, the Western Christian-based world. So there you go. Anybody that touches Cain gets avenged sevenfold. I think it's quite cute that uh, the first place that Cain goes is away from the Lord and settles in the land of Nod, which if you've ever read like vintage 50s stuff, is what parents would say to their children to put them to sleep, like, off you go to the land of Nod. Which sounds like a nice thing, you know, you're nodding off. No, it's the place where Cain went after he killed his brother and got kicked out of, you know, wherever he was living. Not a great time. So there you go. That's the first murder. Congratulations. So the next thing that happens is a lot of so-and-so begat so-and-so. And this is where you can be really happy that I'm reading this and not you. Because you don't have to read through, you know... Um, Edach, and the name of the other was Zillach, Ada bore Jabal, who bore Tubal Cain, and all of these great fancy names. We don't have to read any of those because I feel like we could just go skippity skip. Like I say, this is the down market version. If you want to go mine for some biblical names, you just have right at it, my friend. There are lots of them in there. So we do a very long lineage and we go all the way from Adam past several very long-lived guys, I think like up to 175 years, and then we get to Noah, who, let me tell you, if you were waiting for the grandpa nakedness, it's coming, I promise. All right, quick detail before we get to, by detail I mean detour, before we get to Noah and all of his weird grandpa naked curses. The first little chunk that I wanted to let you know about, we've skipped on ahead to Genesis chapter 6, and we get to this part, which I think, and I believe is quite commonly thought, is the origin for a lot of our myths about giants and heroes. Uh, it's quite comparable to the Greek version of demigods, guys like Heracles, Achilles, people that were descended from astral beings of some kind. So what happens is once humans start multiplying over the face of the ground, which I feel like in my head, I know it's not how it happened because, you know, babies were made in the usual fashion. But in my brain, it's just a bunch of babies going bloop, 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 just fully formed humans blooping out of the ground. I don't think that's what happened. But anyway, they began to multiply and they were all over the place like a bunch of rats. Anyway, so God says, by the way, I've decided that humans are not going to live for 777 years anymore. That was a mistake. So I will not have my spirit live in them forever because yikes, that's too much. So they're going to be mortal and they're going to die. And then the Nephilim apparently just showed up on Earth. And my understanding is that these guys are 
kind of like angels. If you want to go look up all the different classes of angels and the seraphim and cherubim and nephilim and all that kind of stuff, you can find that in the Catholic mythology canon. We're not going to go into it here. So the nephilim, fancy astral celestial angel dudes, um, are down on earth. And then these sons of God look on the daughters of men and say, whoa, give me some of that. And then they have babies. And so this is that piece where we get some demigods. And the only, the only statement in this part of the book is these were the heroes that were of old warriors of renown, which makes me think of guys like Heracles and Achilles. Anyway, interesting similarity between the mythologies of, of different traditions. So there you go. And then all of a sudden, don't ask me if this is related to the Nephilim getting it on with human ladies or not. It's just a abrupt scene change, which will happen lots throughout this little journey that we're on. So the Lord just said, whoa, humans, those are wicked. I don't like those. And he was sorry that he'd made them, which is kind of sad. And apparently it grieved him to his heart, which is kind of lame. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. That's We must have done something real bad for the guy that made us to be like, mm, nope, this was a mistake. Although I feel like in the modern era, there are lots of people who would agree and say, yeah, that was a mistake. That flood you were about to do should have done a better job because what are we still doing here? Existence is futile and so on and so forth. Anyway, so God's looking around at all these people and says, man, these guys are wicked and I hate this. Why did I, why did I do this to myself? Which I feel is a question many parents must ask themselves. But then he looks at Noah and says, you know, that Noah guy, he's not so bad. You know, it's not too bad. And Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth which is cool. Got some sons. Apparently these sons all have wives and Noah also has a wife, but uh, newsflash, they don't get any names because why would you name the ladies? Don't worry. If your feminist heart is sad, as my feminist heart is sad, we will get to some really badass ladies later on in the Old Testament. There are some really, really cool stories where ladies are awesome. This is not one of them. This is a story where dudes are weird. So God just, you know, calls up Noah on the celestial telephone and says, hey, so, this is what I'm thinking. Humans, bad plan. So I've decided that what I want to do is actually destroy them all. Uh, yeah. And I don't know what Noah said, because it doesn't say that in the Bible, but I know what I would have said, which was, wow, okay, slow down. But if Noah said that, it's not remarked upon. So God then just goes on and says, by the way, what I want you to do is build a great big ark, which if you don't know, is a gigantic boat. And he even gives the measurements. So if you would like to make an ark at home, here's what you need. First thing you need is some cypress wood. Your rooms in the ark need to be there. You need to have rooms. And you have to cover the inside and outside with pitch. And pitch, I used to know how it was made, but I don't. But I'm guessing the purpose here is to waterproof your boat. Because once again, spoiler alert, what's going to happen is it's going to rain for a really long time. So you really want your boat to be waterproofed. So once you've done that... Here's the instructions and the measurements. You need to have a length of the arc that is 300 cubits. For anybody that doesn't know, a cubit is the length that you can measure between the king's elbow and the tip of his longest finger. And I, that's the official definition. Based on my reading, I suspect every carpenter would just use their own forearm, you know, from their elbow to the tip of their longest finger. It's approximately a foot, but uh, it's a cubit, so... 
technically it's the king. So if you have a king that's born with really short arms, all of a sudden all the buildings are different sizes. I don't know how that works. But anyway, now you know what a cubit is, and you know that an arc needs to be made 300 of those long. And it's with 50 cubits, and you need to make a roof and finish it to a cubit above. I don't know what that means. I'm guessing the roof needs to be just a cubit above the top of the boat. So it's kind of like a little house boat, boat house. Anyway, and then you need to put a door in it, which is good. I feel like God was really thinking ahead and going, you know what? Humans are really not that awesome. Not that bright. I don't know who made them. It must have been me. And we have to give them very precise instructions because if they don't make doors in the sides and multiple decks and rooms, this is just going to be a complete and total wreck. So there's your instructions. If you want to make an ark at home, it has to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high with a little roof on the top and a door in the side. Multiple decks and rooms. You got it. If you do decide to make yourself an ark, I don't know, shoot me a an email, let me know how that goes for you, because that would be pretty, pretty cool. So, and then God says, that's your part. For my part, and you're like, oh, okay, God's going to help Noah build the ark. No, for my part, I'm going to bring a flood of waters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all the flesh in which is the breath of life. Hot. Nice work, God. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to establish a covenant. This is an important word. (sighs) Like I say, this isn't a biblical scholarship class, but it's going to come up later. Covenant is just a really fancy word for promise. It's like a really important promise. You've decided, like, you do your part, I do my part. We are bound to do this for the rest of ever, so don't screw it up. So God says, but I'm going to make a covenant with you and all your sons and your sons' wives and stuff. We don't care about them. But anyway, they're probably still there. And we're going to make a covenant. And so as long as you are not a jerk, um, I'm going to keep you alive. And I'd like you to bring one of every kind, male and female, a little bit gender binary, whatever, two of all of the different kinds of animals, bring them on board the ark, which is where in pop culture you get all the jokes like, oh, that's why we don't have any unicorns. That's why we don't have any dinosaurs. Noah forgot to put them on the ark, or they missed the ark. Those kinds of things. Anyway, and you'll see lots of pop culture references to Noah. He's a very popular story with lots of things in there that that aren't in there. You'll see lots of crowds of people being like, oh, Noah, what does he know? What a loser, making an ark. None of that's in here. That's just stuff that people have made up. Lots of biblical plays in the Middle Ages. Noah was a popular guy. And really, I mean, once the church says you can't do anything fun except read the Bible, humans are ingenious and they find a way to make their own fun. And so lots of the modern interpretations and things that we hear in pop culture about biblical stories come from what I'm terming Catholic mythological tradition, where people went, you know what? Um, For example, nobody says what happens to Noah's wife. I'm going to write her into my play and she's going to be awesome. It's basically Bible fanfic and a good chunk of what was created in the Middle Ages and in the West for quite some time, things like Paradise Lost and all that kind of stuff is all... Bible fanfic. You'll notice that in the last episode, there was no fall. Uh, you know, Lucifer didn't fall from heaven, any of that kind of stuff. None of, none of that is in the first little bit. So that's stuff that people have just added their own interpretations to, which I think is kind of magical. It's one of those things where if you say to very religious people, oh yeah, you guys have a mythology, they get a little mad about it. So watch out for that. And like I say, if you are one of those people who's still listening at this point, look, I'm not trying to offend you. This probably isn't the podcast for you. Anyway, Noah does all the things that God commands. They get some food, they get some water, 
they're going to have a lot of water really soon, but whatever. And they get two of all the animals and put them in the ark. And then the Lord says, hey, get in the ark. And Noah presumably does that. So they took all the stuff. And then, remember that number that I said was really important? God makes it rain for in seven days. And he's going to make it rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. This is also a really important number. And again, this is why we're doing the Old Testament first is because by the time you get to the New Testament, you see those numbers popping up again, right? Uh, You know, preview, sneak peek, Jesus is going to be out in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. It's a very common number in the Bible. We're going to see it more than once. So 40, there you go. So there you go. There's There's a flood and that's what happened. And they're out in the water for a long time. All the animals get in there. They get shut up in there. Everything's good for them. And everybody else dies. There's a lot of repetitive, florid language about all of the beings on the earth get blotted out. You just need to know they died. That's what happened. Everything else was there. And so then the water stayed on the earth for 150 days. Now, I'd just like you to picture this. Can you imagine being stuck in a boat with like, what, eight people? Noah and his three sons and then all their wives. A bunch of animals. All of their poop for 150 days. Whew. That is a trial and tribulation if ever I heard one. And then (laughs) we move on into chapter 8. With my favorite sentence so far, but God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and all the domestic animals that were with him in the ark, which, I mean, cool. And I'm sure that in the original, this was meant to be, uh, once again, an oratory tweak that would allow you to remember what happened and just saying that, you know, God hadn't forgotten, but it really makes me giggle to think about, you know, 150 days go by, God's looking down and goes, yeah. Smushed those humans, drowned them all. Mm, I did good. And then he goes, oh shit, what happened to Noah? But he remembers him, so it's okay. And then the waters start to subside because God makes a wind blow over all of the earth and all the waters subside and everything is great. And so at the end of 40 days, Noah opens up the window of the ark. Oh, he put a window in, by the way. So if you're making your own ark, you need a window. God didn't tell you about that the first time around. God's one of those designers that, you know, you make the ark and then he looks at it and goes, mm, it's just missing a little something. I want to add like, I don't know, like a window. So if you've already built your ark, I'm really sorry. Now it needs a window. And out of the window, Noah sends a dove. And this is another important bird. So we've got sevens, we've got forties, we've got doves, we've got threes. These are the things you're going to need to keep in your brain as we keep going here because... Uh, once again, spoilers, doves are going to come back. So he actually sends out three birds. So first he sends out a raven and it doesn't come back. And that's because it couldn't find anything to make its nest and it probably died. And I'm kind of sad about it. But it's okay because then Noah sends out the dove and the dove comes back bearing an olive branch. And, you know, from an olive tree. And that, of course, is a sign that Hooray! Things are growing on the earth and maybe we can survive if we get out of this boat, which is wonderful. So they do get out of the boat and then Noah builds a nice altar and he takes all of the clean animals and all of the clean birds. By the way, this is written from the Jewish tradition. So if you are unaware, there are things that are clean and unclean to eat. 
So these are animals and birds that are permitted to be eaten. So things that don't have cloven hooves, that kind of thing. Uh, there's a bunch of other rules. I am not Jewish myself, but if you want to look that up, that's what's meant here by clean and unclean animals. So if it's okay to sacrifice to the Lord, Noah did that. And the Lord was like, yeah, this is some good stuff. And then this is where we also get the rainbow. If you've ever seen illustrations of the Ark anywhere, you know, in like, I don't know, children's pictures and stuff like that, you'll often see a rainbow over it. And this was the promise that God made never to destroy the earth again. And actually, I have to say, apparently what made the Lord do that was that the smell of the sacrifice was just so darn good. Because it says the pleasing smell reaches the Lord's nostrils, I guess, or just reached him. <laughs> when the Lord smelled the pleasing odor with whatever he smells with, his proboscis or something, the Lord was like, aw, look at those nice smells that Noah made for me. Cool. I'm not going to destroy those guys ever again, which is handy. And you'll notice that from now until, from then until now, we haven't had a gigantic flood that's going to destroy everybody. So, you know, maximum win. Maybe God's keeping his promise. Whether he should keep his promise is a separate question and one that we will not get into here. So then God makes the same request of Noah that he made of Adam and Eve, who are now dead, by the way, because I'm sure they were not on the boat. Then he says to them, be fruitful and multiply, because, I mean, I told that to the last group, but it didn't go so well, so I'm going to try it again with you. And so they do. And oh, they've established a covenant and there's a lot of great language about, you know, the covenant. And the rainbow is, in fact, the sign of the covenant that, that God has made with Noah. So he made a promise and said, look, as long as you're not jerks, I won't destroy the world. Everything is great. Here's a rainbow to prove it. Everything is wonderful. Yay! Now we get to the good part. If you've been hanging on to this episode just to get to the naked grandpa part, you're in for a treat because here it comes. So... Remember that Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So now all three of those sons, hang in with me, had also sons. So Noah's got some grandsons. And one of his grandsons' name is Canaan. Now, I this was news to me when I read this part. So I want you to keep the word Canaan in your brain. I don't know. You guys should be making a list of all the things I'm telling you to remember. Don't worry. I'll remind you when they come up again. But Canaan specifically is going to be coming up later on in the... Old Testament, and I'm just as interested as you are to see how that happens, because if you know anything about Exodus, the land of Canaan shows up a lot. But in this case, Canaan is Noah's grandson. So Noah, a man of the soil, he's the first guy to get in on the grape train, you know? He's planted himself a, a vineyard, and then he decided to sample some of his wonderful work, made himself some wine, and got shit-faced. And it says that he lay uncovered in his tent, to which I thought, yeah, I wouldn't want a blanket in the tent either. But, like I say, newsflash, correction, that is not what happened. Noah was just laying there, buck-ass naked, in his tent. And then, poor Ham comes along and sees his dad laying in the tent, buck-ass naked, and goes, oh shit. So he goes and gets his brothers and says, uh, hey, so dad's naked in the tent, you want to... You want to fix that? And, you know, Shem and Japheth, they were, I guess, obviously smarter dudes. And they walked in backwards. They took a garment between the two of them, walked in backwards, and covered up their dad so that they didn't have to see him naked. Which, I mean, I'm okay with that. I'm all about modesty. This makes good sense. But then, here's where it gets weird. So, Noah wakes up 
I think the phrase is very wonderful. He awoke from his wine, which I don't know if any of you have awoken from your wine before, but I certainly have. It's not always pleasant. And he also sees that he's been covered. Therefore, someone must have seen him while he was naked. Embarrassing. So what he does, this is the part that's completely incomprehensible to me. Don't ask me to explain it. I don't know why it happens. But Noah says, that's it. I'm going to curse my grandson. So remember, Ham's the son that saw him naked. Ham's son is Canaan. And Noah just says, yeah, I'm a cursed Canaan. Which I I don't know. And he makes his grandson the slave to his other sons. Which I just is like... Wow. That is some... Mm, can you imagine? Can you imagine walking in and seeing your dad all wrinkly and naked and then your kid gets punished for that? I don't understand. I'm sure... I'm not sure. My guess is... This is my best guess based on the fact that the grandson is conveniently named Canaan, which, like I say, becomes a very important feature later on in the Old Testament. I'm guessing that this is one of those ways to explain why the Canaanites are no friends of the Israelites. That'll come up. There's a great big feud going on there. And I suspect that this is one of those stories where, again, a people write their history and say, oh, you know why the Canaanites are assholes? It's because the original Canaanite got cursed for seeing Noah naked. That's a reasonable and logical explanation. And, you know, to be fair, it's as reasonable and logical as anything else. Who knows? It's a good story at any rate. So now we jump into all the nations that are descended from Noah. There's lots of them. I'm not going to tell you what they all are. But we do see in this lineage here that from Canaan, uh, we get the Canaanites. So that, that connection is there. And there's a whole bunch of other languages and families. It's all great. So fast forward. What happens is now that the whole earth is covered in people, and they all speak the same language, which you would think, hey, that's a smart idea. Everybody can communicate, and this is real good. I guess God didn't like it, because what happens is all of the people come together, and they say, you know what, you know what we should do? We should make some bricks. Which, I mean, I guess, you know, I can think of some other things that it might be better to make, but they make some bricks. So they they get some bricks, and they get some mortar, and then they say, we're going to build a city. Cool. It's just like playing, I don't know, Settlers of Catan. First you make a town, then you make a city. And then once you've made a city, the next step is to make a tower. Which, just like every toddler playing with blocks, the humans say, I am going to make this tower so big! And the top of the tower is going to touch the heavens. It's going to be the bomb. And if you've ever seen a toddler playing with blocks, you know that this is, in fact, a vain hope. And just like what happens when you wobble the top block on your block tower, the Lord came down and said, I don't like this. I don't like this at all. So you know what we're going to do? The reason this is working so well for these humans is because they're all one group and they all speak the same language. And that's why this effing tower is getting built. So if I want to fix that, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make it so everybody speaks a different language. Shazam! And that's what happens. And, you know, just as the toddler has all their blocks crash down, the tower was never finished. It didn't, it didn't ever touch the sky, which is too bad. I suspect the toddler was much more pleased with the result than the humans. They were all really confused. Can you imagine just being there and all of a sudden, you know, you're talking to your person in whatever language you've been speaking the whole time, and then all of a sudden they're making noises and you just sit there going, I have no idea what any of that means that must have been really freaky 
So again, we're talking, we're still in the, in the realm of origin stories and mythology. Um, and like I say, I don't say mythology to be uncomplimentary. These, these are explanations and explanatory stories about why do humans speak a bunch of different languages? Well, the answer is they tried to be toddlers and build a big block tower and God didn't like it. So bam, no more, no more communication for you. Get out of here. And because, you know, as humans do, they group together by who speaks what language and they all go off into different parts. And the tower, of course, is called Babel or Babel, from which we get the word babbling, which means that you don't understand what the person is saying. That's the origin of that word, because nobody knew what was going on. Yeah, then they got scattered all over there. And now, once again, you can be really pleased about the fact that you're listening to this podcast instead of reading the actual book yourself, because we're going to skip all the way ahead to the call of Abram. And I'm going to stop you there, because Abraham, well, Abram and Sarai, who become Abraham and Sarah, are a couple of really, really super important characters. So, you know, I want to make sure that they get their full due. So we will talk about them next episode, next week. So they, there's, there's all kinds of good stuff. There's pretending that Sarah's his sister so that she gets to sleep with the Pharaoh. All kinds of drama. You're going to love it, I promise. Lots in there. Pillars of salt. It's going to be great. So there you go. That's, uh, that's the first murder. That's the flood. Naked grandpa times. Congratulations, you were in it for the whole road. Hope you come back to join us next week. Once again, um, you can contact us through social media. If you have any questions, if you want to know more, if you got suggestions about what we should be doing with the podcast, just uh, hit us up. Hope you enjoyed. Thanks.